On today's Padone My Take, I'll be joined by the assistant coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Lindsey Gottlieb. From there, I'm going to tell you why Kareem Hunt is pivotal to the Cleveland Browns offense and why he could be the identity of the Cleveland Browns this season. We're going to poke fun of Mike D'Antoni and those Houston Rockets, get you guys ready for Browns Ravens on Sunday and give you all my takes throughout the rest of the world of sports. So buckle in because we've got a great show, great interview today with coach Gottlieb. You're not going to want to miss that. So let's do it. Let's get right into it because it's Browns game week and Padone my take is presented by my friends at my bookie. It's the official start of football season Thursday is here first Thursday night of the week football season is back and that means winning season is back with my bookie winning season means doubling your first deposit winning season means survivor super contests and squares at my bookie winning season means hitting all of your parlays and all of your props with your feet up and watching your team trounce their rivals the same way that I'm going to do on Sunday with those Cleveland Browns so rejoice it's time to celebrate the NFL season my friends at my bookie want you to invest in your intuition use promo code padone and double your first deposit new players are going to get up to a thousand dollars in free play designated to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games that you bet on from live betting to championship futures every play you're waiting to make is waiting for you at mybookie.ag it's simple you register using promo code padone you make your picks you win big and you collect your cash again use promo code padone that's my last name, Padone, and double your first deposit. Your winning season is here, and it finally begins today. Only at my bookie. Use promo code Padone, and they're going to double that first deposit for you guys. So let's get right into it. I'm a big fan of this bubble, what the NBA has going on. I was skeptical of it like everyone else was at the start. I was unsure if it was going to work. Were the players going to buy in even dating back to when the idea was proposed? You know, is LeBron really going to be cool with being away from his family and from his friends and from his clutch crew for that long and being in some hotel in Orlando with nothing to do? It is working perfectly, and we know that. We know that the coronavirus and everything going on with that, you know, no positive tests since July, and even then I think the one positive was false. But I think what has impressed me so much about this bubble, and I'm going to get into this with Coach Lindsey Gottlieb here in a second, is the competitive play. We have seen a level of competitive play that we haven't seen in the NBA playoffs Maybe ever. And I feel like a big part of that is the oncoming stars that have emerged onto the scene this season, right? First season, first playoff series, we see Luka Doncic in the Dallas Mavericks. Outstanding series. Last series, we got Denver Nuggets. Another outstanding series with young players that are working the ranks. Then you don't even factor in the playoffs, right? How about just the bubble in general and the play-in tournament, the play-in games? The Phoenix Suns were America's team there for a week when I was on vacation. Devin Booker was raining threes. They were undefeated. They were unstoppable. The bubble is posing a perfect situation for young teams without a bona fide superstar to succeed. It's, it's an environment where a team like the Cavs could have gotten invited 
and done fairly well because it's the perfect team building environment. And again, we're going to get into this with Coach Gottlieb here in about three minutes. It's perfect because you have nowhere else to go but the hotel. Your whole life at this moment in time in 2020, if you're one of those teams in the bubble, whether you're in the playoffs now or whether it was when you first got invited to Orlando to Disney, your one goal and your one mindset and everything around you and everyone around you is basketball. That's all there is, is basketball. And I feel like a team like the Cavs with young players like Colin Sexton, with Darius Garland, with Kevin Porter, Dylan Windler, who we haven't even seen yet, it would benefit a team like the Cavs so, so much to be only around each other with their brand new head coach, their brand new coaching staff, and figure out how to win. That's what we've seen with these other teams. They've learned how to win. We saw it with, you know, the Lakers series a little bit. Portland was able to hang in there, and they were a fun story. You know, we've seen it with the Denver Nuggets, who I've been high on. The Miami Heat, who we're going to talk about at the end of the show today, have been on an absolute tear. And I think that all comes from the fact that these guys don't have other things going on. They're not being pulled in a million different directions because their life at this current moment is basketball and I think the Cavs need that and I'm looking forward to seeing the step that the Cavs take next season and it really could have let the team take the next step in their development and in this post LeBron era that we all always hear so much about so let's get right into that interview because joining Padone my take right now is the first ever women's head coach to make that transition to the NBA from NCAA she coached D1 women's hoops for over 10 years and now sits right next to JB Bickerstaff on that Cavs bench here she is to talk some NBA to talk some Cleveland Cavaliers Ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so joining me now from Cleveland, Ohio, is the assistant coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Lindsay Gottlieb. Lindsay, thanks for joining the show. How are you, coach? Thanks for having me. Um, I'm I'm good. Glad to be here and connect with some Cleveland folks. Oh, awesome. They're trust me, they're very happy to have you and very happy to hear you on the show today. So let's get started right from the beginning, if you're cool with that. Um, you attended an Ivy League school, like both of your parents. You played basketball yourself. Talk to me a little bit about how you fell in love with the game and where things all began. Wow, going all the way back to the beginning right off the bat. Um, so I, the earliest memories of childhood, I just always was in love with not just basketball, but all sports. Uh, I have an, uh, three older siblings, but in particular, an older brother that was really into baseball and basketball. And he was eight years older than me. Uh, and I would just follow him around and uh, want to be part of it. And I remember our dinner table conversations were either about sports or somebody's case because there were a bunch of lawyers in the family. Uh, so I just kind of grew up uh, really just around sports. I think when I was super little, I wanted to be the shortstop for the New York Yankees and you know, played everything. And then it wasn't until probably high school that I focused mainly on basketball. Um, I think it was a sport I loved the best and probably that I was best at and ended up going to play at Brown. Um, and while I was in college, I decided I wanted to go into coaching and just that's been the story ever since. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about that time coaching. I'll let you brag a lot about your time at Cal. It was super successful. And you've also worked with Joanne Boyle, who is a you know, legendary women's basketball coach. Talk to me about sort of, in a sense, working those ranks and working below Coach Boyle and becoming the head coach at Cal and having all the success that you had there. What was that like for you? 
Sure. Well, I think that, you know, the coaching profession, it's so interesting because there isn't one protocol. There isn't one path. Uh, there's a lot of ways to do it. And for me, I, I realized while I was in college that I wanted to coach. Uh, I knew that probably a career in, in the professional ranks wasn't going to happen. Um, and so my senior year at Brown, I told my coaches that I wanted to coach and they allowed me to kind of work in the office, almost do an, an internship while I was playing, which was neat. Uh, and that winter, we were there over winter break, just the athletes. There's not much to do. Uh, and so I sent out a letter to all 350 division one basketball coaches saying, you know, this is who I am. I'm graduating in a few months. I want to coach. And it was pretty cool. I got letters back from Pat summit and Tara Vanderveer and some, you know, a lot of different people, most of them saying, Hey, I don't have a job for you, but you know, stay with it. Um, and ultimately I did get my first job at Syracuse right after I graduated. Well, my best friend from high school had, uh, was a terrific player. She was an All-American uh, and ended up playing at Duke. So one of her assistant coaches was Joanne Boyle, who you mentioned. A couple of years later, I'd been at Syracuse for two years and then at the University of New Hampshire for a year. And then Joanne left Duke to become the head coach at the University of Richmond and asked me to come along with her. And at that time, I was 24. I remember I needed to get a note from the athletic director when I went out recruiting so that I could rent a car and not pay the under 25 fee. Uh, and Joanne let me really have a lot of um, ownership of that program with her. Um, got to do a lot of things from, you know, running the offense to recruiting to all the things that kind of go, go into starting the program. Uh, so from, for me, working for a first-time head coach, Joanne had been a longtime assistant at Duke, was just a terrific opportunity in my career. And then we did well at Richmond and she took the job at Cal. I got the chance to go out to Cal with her and now sort of do the same thing, but at a higher level. And then, you know, a couple years later, I was a head coach at Santa Barbara and then back at Cal. So that was my path. That's awesome. So fast forward to today, you've been in Cleveland for about a year now um, with us with the Cavaliers. What has been the best part of your time living here in Cleveland? And what have been some of the weird nuancy challenges of transitioning from women's college hoops to the NBA? Well, I don't think this year has been, you know, typical in any shape of the word, obviously, because of a huge transition from, you know, West Coast to East Coast, women's basketball to men's, college to pro, but then throw in, you know, a coaching change and a pandemic. And uh, it's it was just kind of a little bit more than I expected. But we love Cleveland. I would say, um, gosh, what do I love the best? Clearly the job, you know, and and being in the NBA is just, it's not lost on me what an incredible league it is. And and just sort of the, the, the most elite level of basketball and getting to, um, you know, think the game all the time, talk the game, and just find ways to help make this organization better. That, that's what drives me, and it's been an incredible experience. On top of that, we really like Cleveland. I mean, people are like, oh, you're leaving the Bay Area. But I think, you know, my husband and I believe Cleveland's a hidden gem. The fact that we've kind of been sheltering in place and, and quarantined for six months probably has allowed us to get to know the city more quickly. I feel like we've lived here more than a year in that sense. So I would say those are the best things. The, the craziest things, I mean, the most, the most sort of straightforward thing is that, you know, I coached women's college basketball for 20 years. So the biggest transition for me was not coaching men. Uh, it was more the rhythm of everything. You know, I know the college rhythm, like the back of my hand, you know, when do you take a day off? When do you start prepping for a game? When do you practice hard? When do you reel it in? But the NBA, that rhythm with 82 games and not that much practice time just took a little bit for me to kind of catch my, my rhythm with that. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, the season got, got shut down. So 
uh, still adjusting to that. But the guys were incredible. There was not a lot of difference to me in dealing with men than dealing with women. It's more you're dealing with the most elite. So there's more similarities between these guys to the pros that I coached at Cal, I would say, because uh, the mindset is similar. I know Kobe Altman has done a really good job in Cleveland kind of working through player development and building through the draft. And I know as an assistant coach, you have a pretty big hand in working with those guys. What were, the, what were those conversations like with Kobe Altman and how did you get in touch with him to come to Cleveland and to work with young players like something that you were used to doing already in college? Yeah, I think that was what was so moving to me about the situation. Uh, you know, I had some connections in the NBA and you know, with the, with the way that things have gone relative to women, I was having more conversations with NBA people about what the next five to 10 years might look like for women in the NBA. But most of the conversations were about how to get young people involved. Hey, do you have any players who might be interested? That type of thing. Well, Kobe came at it. Uh, a mutual friend connected us and said, hey, you know, I think you'd really hit it off with Kobe. You know, he's progressive, he's young, he's smart. And I thought it would just be maybe, you know, a friendship and, or something down the line. Well, when he you know, sat down with me, he said, we just hired Coach Beeline and, and really we're trying to create a staff that is about development and this kind of next phase of, you know, the Cavs organization. And he's like, I, I know I've studied what you've done. I, I know what you bring to the table and we want you to be a part of that. We think your skill set would add value. And that was just really different than what, what other, you know, any other teams that had spoken to me about anything. And I was really intrigued by that. Um, because I don't think people at that point have been thinking about women, you know, who've been coaching for 20 years, who have experience at one level, and how can that translate? And so for me, I just focus every day on number one, being a great assistant to JB Bickerstaff and to the organization, but also how to make Cleveland a place where young guys feel like they can better themselves and their career. And that's how we're going to build through the draft, through development, through creating, you know, a narrative and free agency that that's what we're about, because it is what, what we're about. Was that a daunting thought and a daunting few days or weeks, I'm sure, when the offer was made? Like, holy cow, I'm going to leave the place where I was so comfortable and have had so much, so much success to come to a city that has, again, lost LeBron and have to do this all over again. Was that scary at all? Absolutely. I mean, it's as if you and I talked before. This is our first time chatting. Uh, I would say daunting is an understatement. I mean, it was really scary. Um, but I, in that time of sort of thinking about it, that scariness, that feeling of, you know, knowing you're going to leave a comfort zone and go do something, you know, really different, really exciting, but, but hard was actually why I, I kind of sat in that feeling for a little bit and why I ended up doing it. Yeah. You know, I remember at one point my husband said, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, and there's nothing, there would have been nothing wrong with staying at Cal for a really long time and, you know, felt a lot of, um, just passion about that and impacting, you know, young women and student athletes, but the chance to sort of get out of my comfort zone, see if I could add value to this organization, challenge myself. That's ultimately, you know, why I did it. And even since I've been here, it's, it's easy. Isn't the word that I would use to describe it. It's been incredible, but, but different and a new challenge. And uh, I'm just, I'm really grateful um, for that and, and excited about, you know, continuing to grow into this role and bringing as much as I can to this organization. So in my opinion, you've honestly done a great job even by coaching men to empower women to show that women, especially younger women in sports can do literally whatever they want. And that glass ceiling is slowly starting to be broken. It's been a super hectic season. We've talked about that. 
Was there ever a moment throughout where you're able to sit back and be like, wow, this is pretty, you know, historic. This is pretty monumental what I decided to do and how it's going, especially after moving to the front of the bench after the coaching change there. I think that the neat thing about it is that once you're in it and it's such an intense job, right? We're with each other every single day and on airplanes and hotels and in the, in the, the gym and stuff. The cool thing is that it actually became, you know, the way I was treated within the building and around there, like it, it felt as normal as possible, right? Like they all just, you know, treated me like I was someone else. Um, and I, I do think that that type of representation matters, right? Like when young women see that, that, I am just part of the staff like everybody else. And, and to be honest, not just young women, you hope that, you know, boys watching the game, but also the, the guys that I'm around, just it changes their mindset about, you know, you can't really believe things can happen until you see it every day. Where I would get the, wow, you know, this is kind of cool moment is when, you know, you're, we're on the, the court in Philly about to play the Sixers and, and, a, and a woman who's sitting in the courtside seats you know, stops and says, Hey, you know, what you're doing is really inspirational. Things like that are cool that you, you, you see the reach and the impact it has on, on other people. Um, so that is part of my motivation to do it was because I, I know people have to do things in order for other, you know, younger generations to believe they can be done. But I also recognize that just doing my job well on a day-to-day -day basis is what is going to actually open doors, you know, for other people down the road. I have to be good at the job in order for it to impact other people as, as much as I, I possibly can. For sure. Kobe and JB have also done a fantastic job with inclusion in this really weird time. Not only are we battling coronavirus, we're also dealing with the social injustice that's happening all over. They launched the hashtag be the solution campaign in junction with the Cavs and the tribe. How great of leaders have JB and Kobe been behind the scenes in these Zoom meetings with these guys in troubling times where they see their peers in Orlando boycotting games because of the brutality that are happening to you know their own people in their own cities? Yeah, I mean, it's really unbelievable and remarkable. And to be honest with you, um, I wasn't just going to jump at any job in the NBA. I, I was only going to come to a place where I felt like uh, you know, it was the right fit and usually the right fit is about the people. So, you know, Kobe and, 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 and JB and the people were surrounded with, like, I really believed in who they were as people. Now, of course, none of us could predict what was going to happen with the pandemic. And even with, you know, this summer of, of, you know, the, the movement going on for, uh, for social justice, but to see them kind of go about, you know, their jobs and their responsibilities every day is, it's really inspirational, inspirational. And to be honest, we don't have a regular nine to five job. And so in order to do this thing, well, you have to feel connected to people, you know, in, in who they are and their character and their mission. And so it's been great for me um, just to, to be that connected to JB and Kobe and believe in what they're about uh, off the court, on the court. Um, and it's been pretty cool. I've also been so impressed with the whole Cavs organization from the top down. I mean, even the stuff that we've done sort of not just the basketball team part, but like the, you know, the business aspect, the, the people who put, you know, uh, the Cavs and Monsters and Charge together, like they've been very progressive on this uh, and the city of Cleveland. And I'm just, I'm really proud to be part of it and, and play my, sp my small part. Definitely. They've also, from what I've seen from afar, done a really good job with combating the coronavirus and combating not being invited to the bubble. Even a handful of guys, you know, kind of rejected to go back to their hometowns and just stayed local and were practicing when allowed and social distancing, wearing masks, everything like that. You're in the building, you're there. What's that been like? And how, 
what does that say, I guess, about the organization that these guys are willing to put in that work, even though they weren't invited to, to compete this year? Well, I think, you know, JB set a really good tone and, and, you know, we weren't happy to not be included in Orlando. We kind of set the mindset that, you know, any party, so to speak, the NBA is having, we want to be a part of it, whether that's the playoffs, you know, in the future or anything that, um, you know, is, is the pinnacle of, you know, the league that we're in. And, and so we took it with a little bit of a competitive fire. And at the same time, we understood and we said, this is our situation and we have to make the best of it. So the Cavs organization, it really, I mean, they really are about taking care of the players, the betterment, betterment of players and sparing no expense to make it as safe and positive as possible. So in order, you know, to be there and kind of see the, an organization run at a high level and do the testing at a high level and the protocols, I mean, I feel safer in that building than probably anywhere else, um, you know, cause we get, you know, we get tested and, you know, there's intense cleaning going on and, and, and everyone's really followed the, the protocols. And like you mentioned, to see so many guys show up on a voluntary basis and, and yeah, they want to get the work in, but they could get the work in anywhere. It's more that they wanted to be back together and, and kind of, you know, touch each other, you know, not literally, but figuratively kind of be around each other. When you think about this, we all as part of teams have been around the group pretty much every single day of our life for, you know, however many years. And then to have that cut off for six months, it's hard. And I, I you feel the pull from everyone, you know, that the chemistry was really building under JB and you feel the pull from everyone wanting to continue that um, in whatever way the league will allow us. And so that's, it's been neat to see that. I know the Cavs really wanted to be invited. You talked about it. I know Kobe has talked to it, uh, you know, almost ad nauseum and it has proven to be a valuable experience for young teams. Look at what the Phoenix Suns were able to do in their run there. What do you think an experience, a bubble like invite could have done for the Cavs? Well, I think it's a two part, right? The first thing is, you know, we have a bunch of young players who the more practices and the more games they play, that's really the best way for them to get better. Certainly skill work and individual work, you know, is one way, but there's nothing like playing against the other best players, you know, in the world in an NBA environment, you know, for Colin and Darius and, you know, KP and, and, and Dylan, you know, being healthy finally. Uh, and, and our other young guys certainly would have served us well on the court and, and hopefully, you know, would have kind of kept their progression going, but also, you know, being in a bubble and not really having anyone else there except your team, you're forced to spend, you know, a lot of time together. So I think those were the two areas that we felt, you know, a little bit slighted that we didn't get out that, that opportunity. But you also go, you know, okay, you got to play the heck out of the cards you're dealt. And so that's, you know, we, we stopped kind of being sad about it after a minute and, and, and got to, okay, well, what can we do? Um, and we've been able to, you know, do some things virtually with connection with guys and some leadership training with the young guys on the team who, you know, will end up being the cornerstones of this organization and also some, you know, team bonding and, and, and then the in-person stuff I think was really positive because uh, you take, you take that away for a while. And, and I think there's a greater appreciation for what you have when everyone comes back together. So a cool part about the bubble that I definitely wanted to ask you was the casualness of the coach dressing. <laughs> I know you, you had some jokes about that right when you got hired that you need to find 82 different outfits. I had the privilege to cover some games this season and you are always were dressed to the nines there. 
what do you think are the odds we could see some casual coach this upcoming season? Maybe some, you know, sweatpants or some joggers on a Friday like normal people get to do around the office. I know. We'll see. It, it's interesting. I, I kind of am going to defer. I think that's going to come down to the head coaches in the league, the 30 of them, and what they want to push for. I, I imagine that uh, I, I think – you know, JB would be on team jogger all the way if, if, if he could. That's my guess is that that's what he would vote for. But it'll be interesting to see coming out of the bubble if the coaches push for that. You know, I jokingly said, like, it's funny. You know, there's obviously I think women are in the NBA to stay, and I think it's just the beginning. But I joke that, you know, we're here and, um, you know, sort of want to be treated like everyone else and respected. But then also there's times at which – you know, people forget we're not actually guys and it does take longer than 20 minutes to get dressed before the game. And it is harder to pick out, you know, outfits and not just switch the tie. So uh, I do have fun, you know, getting, getting dressed up and, and, and doing something different since I spend most of my life in sweats. But I also think the casual sideline attire would be a lot easier on a, on a lot of people. Uh, so we'll see what happens, but you, you can tell those coaches enjoy wearing the, the polos and the, the joggers on the sideline in, in Orlando. I wonder how crazy they could get with it. You know, like Bill Belichick in the NFL just wears the hoodie with the sleeves cut exactly. off. So I wonder how crazy they could get there. So you talked a little bit about Darius and Colin and, you know, what they could have benefited in the bubble. You were a guard at Brown. Uh, what's that been like for you to see two young guys that the Cavs drafted back-to-back and spent a lot of draft capital on with those high picks? What's that been like for you to work with those two in particular? Well, one – kind of incredible thing about the NBA is that a lot of the time, you know, assistant coaches spend is individually, you know, and you kind of work closely with individual players because there's less group practice time. And so I found that that individual connection, the ability to watch film, to translate, you know, what a guy needs to individually improve is, is really big in the NBA. So that's been kind of fun to figure that out. Those two guys in particular are just, they're incredible workers. I mean, they want to be in the gym. They want to get better. Uh, and, and I think we started to see in those last 11 games after the all-star break, uh, you know, how they could, um, the synergy between them, how they could thrive. Uh, you know, Colin was scoring the ball in an incredibly high clip. Uh, you know, Darius, you think about his upward trajectory. He played four college games. He wasn't, you know, even a one and done. He was four, four games and done. Uh, and then coming off of an injury. So the way that his body transformed and, you know, uh, his ability to kind of grasp his super high IQ – I think we haven't seen yet exactly what they can do together. You know, we know that, that the size thing poses, you know, some things we got to deal with on the defensive end. But on the other hand, you know, you see the mismatches that it can create for other people, you know, when those two are in sync. And I think that's what we're aiming towards. Like that's the high end of what it can be. And we're still on that path to, you know, figuring out how good we can get with those two in the backcourt. And, you know, then you throw in, you know, KP is in that same kind of, young youthful age and he's bigger and Dylan you know presents something else being you know a long wing and so hopefully we can eventually throw some different looks at people um, but there's no question you know we, we expect Colin and Darius to continue to improve individually and also as a as a backcourt together. Definitely. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, you know, you had great success in college hoops. You've already worked your way up the NBA sideline a little bit here in your first year in Cleveland. Is the end goal to be the head coach on an NBA sideline or is it just to see what, what happens and to see where life takes you? Well, it's funny, Nick, like that you asked, I, I will say I've approached my career the whole time, you know, I'm 21 years now coaching with never being like a step to an end goal. I just, I haven't thought that way. I don't think it makes you successful in coaching. When I was an assistant, I was never saying, Hmm, you know, 
two more years and then I'll be a head coach. And, and when I went to Santa Barbara as my first head coaching job, I wasn't like, okay, the clock is running till I go to a power five. I just, I, I think it's such an all in type of job. You have to be, your feet have to be planted where you are for other things to emerge. I will say this. I, I did not leave Cal to come to the NBA saying I have to be an NBA head coach one day. I just, cause there's no guarantee that that happens, you know? And so I had to come into it saying, I want to be an assistant with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Ultimately did I, I, I really enjoyed being a head coach and, and there are things about being a head coach that I miss, but I think it makes me a better assistant having been a head coach. And I have so much more still to learn and get better at. Would it be cool to be a head coach in the NBA one day? You know, certainly if that's what it feels like it's going, you know, and if I would be deserving of that, but you know, I could be a head coach, you know, at a different level, or I could stay an NBA assistant for a really long time if that feels right too. I, I don't, I really don't have this like time frame and end goal, but I do think sooner than later there will be, you know, a head coach in the NBA that's a a, a female because why not, right? I mean, I just the 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 kind of reasons not to are getting smaller and smaller, and at some point you know, an ownership group or a GM as they're looking for who the best person is, they're going to figure out in one time that it's that one person who happens to be female. I don't know when that's going to be. Um, I just, you know, I do think it's going in that, that direction. And for me, I just want to be, you know, as good as I can be at what I'm doing and see where that goes. And that's honestly such solid, like career advice in general, yeah. like leave coaching out of it. Like you should never go into something like, oh, two, two more years. And then I could work my way up because that's only, you know, setting yourself up for disappointment and to not achieve what you're going in to do in the first place. So absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. So Lindsay, we're so lucky to have you here. I don't want to keep you on forever. I know your, your little son had his first day <laughs> ever of school today. So that's awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. It was a whole lot of fun. Where can people give you a follow to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, so Coach Lindsay G uh, on both of them. Uh, it was Cal Coach G for so long that I had to, I had to think about that for a second. But yeah, Coach Lindsay G on Twitter and on Instagram, and uh, just really excited to be in Cleveland. Can't wait to start whatever's next. We don't know when the NBA is gonna, you know, get going. But this group that we have, I think, you know, is special, and the the progress that we're making is is real. And so we can't wait to get to do that in front of fans again. Yeah, and we're excited to get to that Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse and watch. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great stuff there from Cavs assistant coach, Lindsey Gottlieb. I feel like we're a lot smarter today having heard from her. Super exciting, man. We're, we're entering such weird times, especially with all these fires around the NBA after the bubble and teams are trying to figure out you know, what steps to make next to better their organization. And I think it's an exciting time to be a woman in the NBA because like she said, now general managers and now ownership groups are going to start taking a peek at, well, who is the best candidate? Not who's the best male candidate, but who is the best candidate overall? And I think that's going to open up some really unique and creative opportunities we see it, you know, sometimes in the NFL with certain type of philosophy hires, like, you know, say Sean McVay had a really good offense and he was a young offensive mind head coach. So that started a trickle down effect of everyone else trying to panic and hire really young offensive minded coaches, just like he was. I think the same thing's bound to happen here in the NBA. 
in a little bit where it, it just takes one for that glass ceiling to be broken, that first female head coach to be hired, and then the rest of the GMs. Of course, it all comes down to the success, but the rest of the GMs and the rest of the ownership groups are going to just follow suit because that's how these things normally go. So great stuff there from Lindsey Gottlieb. I'm still bummed the Cavs didn't get that invite that they're not in the bubble, but I'll just have to sit on my hands and wait. Of course, Coach Gottlieb appeared on the show courtesy of my friends at dugoutmugs.com. My guy, Randall Thompson, former Blue Jays pitcher, hooked me up with some new tribe bat mugs and I love them. I'm a huge fan. You guys have to check these out because our Cleveland Indians are in first place, which means it's time for you to grab your dugout mugs today. Drink water, coffee, tea, beer, or literally whatever your heart desires out of an actual baseball bat and watch our tribe trounce those Minnesota Twins this upcoming weekend. The crew at Dugout Mugs have been so impressed with you guys. That's all I hear about is how impressed that they are and how many people are claiming their free knob shots. I've been telling you guys about these little things. It's the knob of a baseball bat hollowed out on the inside, turned into a shot glass. They're sending free knob shots to my listeners who missed out on the last few weeks' action. Visit dugoutmugs.com, dugoutmugs.com, slash padone to claim your free knob shot. That's dugoutmugs.com, slash padone for your free shot glass. You just got to pay shipping and handling these bad boys sell for like 24 25 dollars in the indians team shop you can get yours for eight because all you have to do is pay for it to send it to your home address that's dugoutmugs.com slash padone dugoutmugs.com slash padone even though the crew is super impressed this is still a super limited time thing so don't wait around the tribe are going to make the playoffs they're tied for first go get your knob shot dugoutmugs.com slash my last name padone so super fun show so far, but let's get into the news, man. We're a few days away from Cleveland Browns kickoff. On Tuesday, we hear the breaking news from ESPN's Adam Schefter and plenty other to follow that the Cleveland Browns did in fact extend Kareem Hunt to a two-year extension, keeping him in Cleveland for the next three years. It's a $13.5 million deal over the next two. $8 million of those dollars are guaranteed. Here's what I have to say. You're locking up the best running back duo in the National Football League for the next two years at minimum. Already a big fan. Already a big fan. ESPN already put the article out there earlier this offseason when they were ranking position groups that the Cleveland Browns have the best running back duo heading into this upcoming season. I'm buying that. Nick Chubb was robbed of the rushing title last year. We know that. We know that Kareem Hunt was suspended eight games. We did not have the brightest head coach by any stretch of the imagination. And we didn't get to see those two at their peak, at their capacity. Here's what's something that's kind of crazy to me when I was getting my show notes ready for today. Cream Hunt has only played in 35 NFL games. A lot of that comes from the suspensions, and we know that that's the biggest part probably of this contract is can Cream Hunt stay out of trouble? Because if he can't stay out of trouble, and if he's being honest and truthful that he's turned his life around, this is a great signing and another great extension for Andrew Barry and his is his general manager crew. However, if he gets into more trouble and he can play less games than what we saw last year, 
That's big trouble for the Cleveland Browns. Even though only eight and a half of it's guaranteed, Kareem Hunt needs to be on the field for the Browns. And we don't talk about Kareem Hunt enough. He doesn't get enough love in this city. We spent so much time talking about Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry, Baker Mayfield. We're not talking about a guy that rushed for 1,300 yards plus in his rookie season. A guy that last year when he came in, the offense was clicking tremendously well. Baker trusted him as a check down from day one. But instead, we're arguing over Kaderil Hodge and JoJo Natson and who's going to be the Cleveland Browns' fifth and sixth wide receiver on the team. I think that's foolish. I think we're looking at a team this year and we're so excited about Baker. He, Baker is the number one pick. Him and Stefanski, play action, wide zone offense. The receivers are going to be wide open. It's going to be those big chunk plays down the center of the field like we were hoping for last season with Freddie Kitchens and Todd Munkin airing that ball out. Yeah, football, baby. But I think we're, I, I think we're mistaken. I think we're completely off base when we think like that as Browns fans. Because in my opinion, Kareem Hunt is the guy on the team that has the big playability. This is a guy that averaged 7.7 yards per catch. That's tremendous. 4.2 yards per rush. Tremendous. This is a guy that's going to move the chains for your football team and keep that football out of the other offense's hands. That's going to be so important, and we're going to get to that when we get to our keys to beating the Baltimore Ravens in a second. I just think Andrew Barry here is, is doing a phenomenal job. The Browns have always had a run-first identity. And I wrote about this this week. You could read it. My latest on Fansides, Dog Pound Daily. It's on my Twitter, at NickPadone12. Of course, always tweet the show at Padone, my take. I'd love to hear what you think about the Kareem Hunt signing. Talk to you a little bit on there after the show. My thing with the, with the Cleveland Browns are they've always been a run-happy team. We, we saw it last year where Freddie tried to come in and tried to throw the ball 50 times a game and even had the position players throwing the ball, and it wasn't working. Jim Brown, Kevin Mack, Ernest Biner. Hell, I'll even throw a couple games of Peyton Hillis in there. What do all those guys have in common? They're all running backs, and they all won games in a Cleveland Browns uniform. That's because Cleveland is just a running back city. I don't know what it is about it. Cleveland, Ohio thrives off the run game. We're a blue-collar, hard-working city like the running back position. We happen to play in the AFC North, which is infamous for the rain-snow games at the end of the year that thrive on the tails of the running back. It's just who Cleveland is. We're, we're a run-first identity. So what I hope is that on Sunday, the Browns don't trout out there against the Baltimore Ravens and air the ball out 30 times in the first quarter, like what we saw with Freddie Kitchens last year, because there's no sense in doing that. You have the best running back tandem in the NFL. You have an offense that, as much as wide zone is going to help Baker, it's going to help Nick Chubb. It's going to help Kareem Hunt have some gaps in there to shoot through. And I think that's going to be the most exciting piece of this team. And nobody's talking about it because we're all bent into arguing about these fourth and fifth receivers. And I think we're a little bit silly for doing that. So moving forward, I think Andrew Barry has done a fantastic job. I think Andrew Barry is playing some 4D chess with us right now in terms of setting the market and getting in front of these deals, right? 
I tweeted earlier this week that he is the perfect hybrid between the stones of John Dorsey, the kahunes that John Dorsey had in both his drafting and his free agency and trade approach, as well as the brain of Sashi Brown to manage this money and to trade and gather those assets when it's smart and when's needed. It's the perfect hybrid between the two. We saw the courage going out there to sign Austin Hooper, to sign Jack Conklin, to make that trade for one of the best fullbacks in the league and Andy Janovich to help his head coach succeed and then we saw the brain side of it come in he traded down a couple times in the draft that's giving us more picks for next season and more importantly he's getting ahead of these contracts he did it earlier this summer when he hopped in front of the miles garrett situation obviously miles had two years left on that five-year first overall pick rookie contract Andrew Barry said, hey, we're, we're going to just put these negotiations aside. We're going to pay you here. And it already is working out. It doesn't matter how Miles does on the field because it's already panning out. He's not even the highest paid defensive player anymore. Joey Boza passed him up like two weeks later. And after Nick Boza plays another year or two, I'd hate to see what that payday looks like. So he's giving these guys, you know, in a sense, hometown discounts. And he just did the same thing. And re-signing Kareem Hunt. He knows Kareem Hunt's from Cleveland. Kareem Hunt put in a statement that he wanted to be a Brown. It was his lifetime dream to wear the brown and orange. And now he's here for three more seasons at minimum. And he's doing it on a budget. $13 million over two years. What more can you ask for? The guy is a borderline genius. I know we said the same thing about John Dorsey. And I know it's so easy to say, oh, it's different this time. I feel it. I forget the word that they kept using. Not chemistry. Alignment. The Browns, Jimmy Haslam and J.W. Johnson in searching for the next head coach and general manager kept saying alignment. And I truly do feel that for the first time in my life as a Browns fan, the team is aligned. I feel like we have smart people making the decisions. And the one knock on Andrew Barry was, and I knocked him for this plenty as well because we saw this with the Sashi regime, is... Well, the guy didn't play football. He, he's not really a football guy. He doesn't really come from a big coaching general manager tree of football guys. You know, Freddie had Bruce Arians in front of him. You know, a bunch of a bunch of historic coaches. You know, he coached Matt Ryan. Or he, or he coached uh, Carson Palmer in Arizona and stuff like that. And Andrew Barry, Kevin Stefanski, they haven't been like that. It's, it's nerve-wracking. But they are football guys. They've proven that already. So if things don't go according to plan, I don't want to hear the excuse, well, we didn't have football guys at the helm because we clearly do. They clearly went into this offseason, signed the best right tackle and the best tight end on the market. And then they were able to extend two of the best football players on the current team. So there's no question in my mind that these guys know football. They do. That's that, That's basic facts. So I'm just excited about it. And let's get it right into it because Browns, Ravens, 1 p.m. on Sunday in the big crab cake of Maryland. Here's something that doesn't sit right with me. And uh, I have to hit up my buddies at my bookie about this one. Vegas has the Browns at a seven and a half point road dog. Seven and a half points in the NFL seems a little bit ridiculous to me. I don't know about you guys. Tweet the show at Nick Pinone 12 uh, at Pidone, my take, maybe I'm completely off base here, but to me, really seven and a half point. That means they have to win by eight in the NFL. I mean, in college that happens all the time. And in basketball that happens all the time. So I'll give you both of those, but in the NFL, an eight point spread is a little bit ridiculous. I think Stefanski easily covers that. 
it's going to be a really tough game for the Browns. And I had such a hard time thinking about what my take was going to be on this game going into this podcast tonight, to be completely honest with you. I, I sat down. I read as much as I could. I, I read up on the Ravens. Obviously, I've been keeping up on the Browns. I went back and watched the week four game last year where the Browns were able to succeed. And here's my big takeaway is everything we've heard about the NFL season is that the start of the year is going to be sloppy. It's There's no preseason games, no OTAs, shortened training camp, Browns have a rookie head coach. It's going to be a rocky, messy start to the season. That benefits the Browns. As If Kevin Stefanski is as smart and as organized as he's cracked up to be and as smart as I believe that he is, From seeing what he's done so far, I think that benefits the Browns. I think the Browns will thrive off of messy and sloppy football going into week one because that's how they're going to have to win this game. We know the Ravens have the reigning MVP. They won this division last year. They're the second favorite odds in this AFC conference to go out there and make the Super Bowl. We know that. Those are the facts. But a sloppier game helps the Browns. Because that's all they can do. All they can do is run the ball and keep it away from Lamar Jackson. That's all I ask. Go out there, hand it to Nick Chubb, let that play clock run down to six or seven, snap it, and have Nick Chubb or Kareem Hunt right at your hip again to hand it off. And I think Baker is going to have an okay game because he played decently well against Baltimore the first time. However, it's going to be sloppy. The offense isn't all the way installed. J.C. Treader, your starting center, who's a veteran, is a game-time decision. If he doesn't play, you're going to have a rookie mid-round pick starting at center. We already know your left tackle is a rookie, and he's going to be there all year. So you already have that working against you. A sloppy game on Sunday helps the Browns as low scoring as possible, as much as a defensive mash as humanly can be. I am worried about the linebackers, but a sloppier type of game with no pressure, no fans, it's not going to feel like a road game. You know, if things are a mess and it's 7-7 going into halftime like these AFC North games sometimes get in the brunt of winter, I think that helps the Browns because you have to keep that ball away from Lamar Jackson. You have to keep it away from their run-happy scheme because they're going to try to do it. They're going to try to run all over the field. Just like Kevin Stefanski did in Minnesota, though, you need to slow the game down. You need to be the one that controls the pace. And that's how you're going to win this football game. So do they win? I'm not sure. It's a tough game. The the team that we're going up against, it's just such a tough draw. And the NFL does this to us every year. That's why we haven't won an opener since 2004. Not the only reason, but man, it seems like we haven't had an easy start to the season in forever. Uh, obviously, last week, the Browns beat Baltimore week four. They did so. The score at halftime was 10 to 7. If you're going to win this week, it needs to be a similar deal. It need, it needs to be a low-scoring defensive affair, even though I am slightly worried about that defense. Looking a little bit ahead, obviously Baltimore is going to be a tough one. You got the Bengals and the Washington football team next to up. Two must-win games in my opinion. Even if you beat Baltimore, start off the season 3 and 0 against those easier type teams and man, this city is going to have a heartbeat like we haven't felt about our football team in a long time. It's going to have 2016 LeBron Cavs championship vibes all over again and I can't wait for it. And I think it's possible because I think 
if you win this Baltimore game and you glance ahead at that schedule a little bit, if you could just get past these Ravens, that locker room is going to be believing. They haven't done this since 2004, and they know it. And the last time they did it was against the Baltimore Ravens. And obviously, there's nobody on that team that was there in 2004. But Jarvis knows, Odell knows, Baker knows, Miles knows, that if you can go out there and thump the division champs in week one, you got the Cincinnati Bengals at home in prime time on a short week against a rookie quarterback on Thursday Night Football. Say what you will, but I like my odds. I like my chances there, and that's all I'll say about that. I'm looking forward to Sunday. I'm so pumped. Everybody put a let's go Browns in the chant. Here we go, Brownies. Here we go. It's going to be a fun season. You know, the coronavirus and everything that's going with that. I'm just so happy that we're finally here. There was a time where people on Twitter were so negative with everything with college football and everything with, uh, you know, cancellation dating back to March Madness and the NBA's return and hockey and the struggles that baseball were having early on. Everybody was pointing their fingers at Roger and the NFL saying, hey, buddy, how are you going to pull this off? You got 53 guys on a team. You're a contact sport. He knew it. Roger knew it. We have football back on Thursday, and I couldn't be more excited. What a great game that's going to be, by the way. Chiefs and Texans, whoo, that's going to be an offensive affair, and I'm looking forward to it. So let's finally wrap this bad boy up because it's already time for our play of the week presented by my guys at BigPlay.com, the hosts of this show. So grateful for them and everything that they do over at Big Play. Check them out. You're live home for interactive sports talk every week. You go just give them a follow. That's the best way to do it at BigPlay underscore com. There's no other way to find all the great shows that they're putting out at BigPlay underscore com. Okay, so how this works is, little bit that we've been getting into the, for the last few shows. We got a small play of the week, a medium play of the week, and a large play of the week. So we're looking at a team or athlete or anyone else that missed the mark, that were somewhere in the middle, and that hit the mark. For example, say Doc Rivers has a really bad week coaching. He will be the small play of the week. For example, say LeBron James has a 40-point triple-double in the finals, which he's very capable of doing, and I think he will do very soon. He's going to be the big play of the week. So let's get right into it. Without further ado, our small play of the week, Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets. Congratulations, sir. You are the small play of the week. Buddy has no center on his team. <laughs> oh, no center at all. Tuesday night... Uh, the Rockets got smashed against the Los Angeles Lakers. It was a close game all the way through, but at the end, it was just too much LeBron, too much AD. Uh, Rockets get completely outplayed in the fourth quarter by Rajon Rondo, of all people. Pretty unbelievable, if you ask me. The Lakers bring out a hilarious lineup against the Houston Rockets of nearly all you know seven-footers. They had LeBron, they had Morris, and they had Anthony Davis all on the floor at the same time. And Mike D'Antoni and the Houston Rockets pretty much should have just curled up in a ball and cried. Because from there on out, it, it was over for them. 
I know I know small ball is their deal. I get it. I get that's the way the NBA is leaning towards. I get that the Golden State Warriors changed the game forever. It's a super smart way to go about playing the game because it creates mismatch disasters in situations. You can't do this all the time and expect it to work. It's just silly. It's impish. I, I can't believe that they really went through the trade debt. Well, first they went through the offseason and then they went out through the trade deadline without having a bona fide center on their roster at all all they did was say oh we're gonna have pj tucker play center i get pj tucker plays hard i get it he's a hustle matthew delvadova anderson verjao type of guy he scored six points and six rebounds on average throughout the length of his career and he is now being expected to play very meaningful nba playoff minutes in a high pressure environment against one of the greatest if not the greatest basketball player of all time in lebron james and one of the best second fiddle players probably ever in anthony davis that's you, P.J. Tucker, and that's you, more importantly, Daryl Morey, because you set the guy up to be in this horrid situation where he's out there in no man's land, stranded by himself, trying to defend these future Hall of Fame bigs, and he has no chance. I get that the series is only 2-1, but let's be honest with ourselves. Let's look each other in the eye here and say the Houston Rockets are not, and we're never going to defeat the Los Angeles Lakers and LeBron James. That's that's just silly. Who on that team in a game seven is going to guard LeBron James? Who in that team in a game seven is going to guard Anthony Davis? I have no idea because they have not shown me that, that they're capable of doing that. And this offseason, I don't know what's going to happen in Houston because it's an ugly scene over there. Your head coach is incompetent. He's an old man that refuses to make any changes. Your best player is a silly, goofy hack that does nothing but flail around and itch for free throws, even from the three-point line, at, at any measure necessary, whether it's kicking his feet out, falling down, you name it, he does it. And your collective offensive unit is just chucking threes, bitching and moaning until you until you get your way. That, that's not championship basketball, and it's never going to be. So that's my take on the Houston Rockets. I'm excited to see what happens to them this offseason because I've already written them off against these Los Angeles Lakers. And, uh, yeah, Daryl Morey, you're the small play of the weekend. You should start looking towards next year, buddy, because that's all you got going for you right now. My medium play of the week is Novak Djokovic. Uh, let's talk some tennis here. I'm a big tennis guy. It's a fun fact that you guys probably don't know about me. If you're into tennis, even if you're not, tweet the show at NickPadone12 at Padone my take. So this week, Novak Djokovic hits the line judge from behind him with a tennis ball after being frustrated with a call. This obviously blew up on Twitter. It was a huge deal over the weekend. He pretty much smacks the ball on the ground and like hits it towards the back, like the backstop, the back wall where the line judge stands. And typically what happens there is it'll hit the wall and fall to the ground. And then one of the little ball kids or one of the ball guys, whoever's working that match. And this is the U S open, by the way, scatters all over and picks up the ball and runs back to the side. Well, in this off incident, he hits the ball out of frustration. So we did hit it kind of hard and it hits the lady square in the throat now naturally how things tend to go in 2020 the lady makes a gigantic scene out of it she starts holding her throat like freddy krueger just slit her with one of her wolverine claws she's rolling all over the ground wailing and moaning 
And obviously Novak Djokovic is running over there like in despair trying to make sure this lady is okay. And he didn't like spike it at, you know, he didn't hit a full on forehand at her. He just plopped it back. A frustrated plop backwards is what I would say. Then he gets ejected. That's where I say tennis, tennis misses the mark this week. And tennis is my medium play of the week because it was an accident. He wasn't aiming for the line judge. Go watch the video. And even then the line judge sold it. She deserves an Emmy or a Grammy for the performance that she put on in the U.S. Open by falling to the ground like that. The, the tennis missed the mark. Novak is the one seed. He's the reason people were tuning into the U.S. Open this week. It's obviously mid-pandemic. Tennis players, especially the top ones, make a good chunk of change in endorsements. And a lot of them said, I'm not risking it. I'm sitting at home and I'm chilling with my family. Not Novak. Novak said, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to play for the fans and try to win this thing. Try to win another Grand Slam title. Tennis said no. Kicked him out. So that's kind of nonsense. To me, I was disgusted, truthfully, when I saw that he was disqualified, especially for that. I get that you have to give some sort of penalty, especially in a strict kind of behavioral sport like tennis. I understand a point penalty. I understand even a game penalty if they had to switch sides or something when that happened. But to disqualify him completely from the U.S. Open in the middle of a pandemic when a lot of tennis fans were looking forward to watching him, tennis, tennis really missed the mark too this week. Let's get into it. Let's get into my big play of the week. A guy that I'm super pumped about on a team that I'm super pumped about is Tyler Hero, man. I can't get enough of this kid. Obviously, he's only averaged 13 and a half points in his rookie season. He hasn't made the big waves that John Morant and Zion Williamson have made throughout their young careers thus far, but this dude could play. He's 20 years old, and he's getting ready to play in his first ever conference finals. Obviously, this week, the Miami Heat passed by the Milwaukee Bucks 4-1. to one. Big questions are going to be, what's Giannis's future? My big question is, how legit is this Miami team, and how big of a wave can they make? Uh, the, the Heat were my pick going into the bubble. If you missed any of that action, follow Padone My Take on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and go listen through the rest of those episodes. I'm, I was big on the Miami Heat. Tyler Hero is a perfect fit there. He becomes the youngest player in NBA history. That's a first-round draft pick, I believe, to play on an NBA Conference Finals team. LeBron was 22 when he did it. Michael Jordan was 26 when he did it. So obviously, Tyler Hero joins some super elite company there. I love the guy. He's an awesome player, and I love the Miami Heat, and I really hope they can roll through whatever comes of this next round and have a run at the NBA championship because they play great team basketball. Obviously they have stars in Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo gets better every game that he plays, but it's really the role players. It's the Jay Crowders of the world. It's the Tyler Heroes, the Duncan Robinsons that are really the reason to get excited about the Miami Heat. And that's what makes them so exciting every time you flick them on. So consider me on the Miami Heat bandwagon, uh, you know, Heat Nation. Let's go. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out here. We're up against it. Super fun hour again, man. We're on a roll. Huge thanks to Cavs assistant coach Lindsey Gottlieb. Awesome interview with her. If you're listening to me talk now and you missed Lindsey Gottlieb, go check her out on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. And if you're listening there, make sure to hit that subscribe button. I've got some awesome guests planned, and you're not going to want to miss any of those guys and gals. Even bigger thanks to mybookie.ag. You're going to want to register today and use that promo code 
code Padone, and they're going to double your first deposit. Go do what I'm doing this Sunday. Go bet on the Cleveland Browns with that double deposit and win big. Browns, Ravens on Sunday. I'm looking forward to it. Tweet the show at Padone. My take, tweet me at Nick Padone 12. Super excited to watch the Browns with you guys all season long. Next Wednesday, same bat time, same bat channel. Got a ton of fun planned for that show. We'll recap the Ravens game. We'll look ahead to the Cincinnati Bengals. Make sure to subscribe to Padone My Take on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And as former Browns coach Pat Shermer used to say, we'll see you Wednesday. We'll